guys, it's Leslie Holiday. Today on Table 40, Matt and I were able to sit down with our great friends, Lance and Kara Burtman. There are two things I want to highlight before we jump into this really great conversation with the Burtmans. Number one, we discussed two verses in Ephesians. It's Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17 and 18. I'm going to be honest, I still get a little nervous whenever Matt and I host these podcasts, and I fumble over my words quite frequently. I promise to get better. But in this case, I did, and I said, First Ephesians. Listen, I want to tell you, there is no such thing as First Ephesians. It's simply Ephesians chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. Paul is the author of this letter, and it's a letter to the church of Ephesus. And in this particular passage of Scripture, the one we're talking about, um, Paul is praying for these people, and he's saying, uh, just basically, I want you to know Jesus better. And we discuss with the Bertmans, what does that look like? What does it look like to be a disciple of Jesus versus a fan of Jesus? The challenge I want to lay before you as you listen to this podcast is what practical takeaways can you take from this conversation and apply to your own life to where you can start to know Jesus better? Secondly, Kara Bertman, at the very end of this conversation, we discuss marriage, and she brings up um, a book written by Gary Thomas called Sacred Influence. And I've read the book as well, and I highly recommend this book to my young women out there that are trying to figure out marriage. This book is reliable, and it's very good, and offers a lot of wonderful um, wisdom um, to apply to your marriages. So, man, take a seat at Table 40 and enjoy this conversation with the Bertmans. All right, welcome back to the table. This is Matt Holiday. I'm here with my wife, Leslie, and we are hosting Lance and Kara on the podcast this week. And I should say their last name, Lance Berkman and Kara Berkman. We, uh, we thank you guys for coming on. Lance and Kara uh, were our teammates in 2011 and 2012. Uh, we spent a lot of time together around tables. Uh, we spent a lot of time together as families, and we're excited to, for them to share uh, some of their knowledge and their stories uh, about Jesus and and with you, and, and we're excited to have them on. So Lance and Kara, thanks for coming on with us. Thank you. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Lance, let's get to uh, this. Uh, I think we're going to call this chat at the table, uh, and this is going to be about a story that Lance shared with, with Leslie and I uh, a long time ago. Um, but it's going to be called the fan story, and it goes back to when Lance played with the Astros. And I'm gonna I'm gonna turn the the story over to him. Uh, Lance, you want to share the fan story with us? Well, the context of the story is, you know, when I'm sharing my testimony, um, I always tell people that I grew up uh, in in a great environment for Christian for having a good Christian foundation. My parents are both believers, and um, you know, we went to church all the time, even Wednesday night, which is kind of old school, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. I mean, we were there if the doors were open and um, we were members of the Church of Christ denomination, which is a little bit further right of, uh, than Baptist. So, I mean, it is extremely conservative um, and, and, and a reasonably good base of biblical theology, I would say. And, you know, you grew up knowing all the stories and knowing a lot about God. And I was baptized when I was 11 and I I feel like that I, I made a, an authentic commitment to the faith when I was 11 years old uh, because I recognized the burden of my sin and knew that there was nothing I could do to um, reconcile with God, that I had to allow God to uh, reconcile me to himself. Um, and so I accepted Christ as my Savior at that point and then was baptized. Uh, but growing up in that sort of an environment, 
lot of times it becomes like, you know, you go through the motions and you sort of learn Christianity by rote and it's something that you memorize and, and something that's in your head. And I don't feel like I truly understood what it meant to embrace Jesus with your heart and be and actively engaged in an authentic relationship uh, with Jesus until I got to college and, and through uh, a set of circumstances that had several people, my wife being one of the more influential uh, at that stage of my spiritual development. Uh, and, and when I really started, to, I feel like get it. And so looking back on that period of my life where, you know, I've made the profession of faith at 11. Then I had this, the time all the way until I got to college to where I was sort of just going through the motions for, uh, from that standpoint, uh, Christ, faith speaking. Um, the, I had an incident when I was playing with Houston that, that kind of sums up the difference between what, what would be considered like a head knowledge or, or just knowing a lot about God or, or, or being a fan of Jesus, if you will, as opposed to really authentically engaging with Jesus and getting to know him on a personal level. And so uh, we were, we had a pitcher uh, during those days with the Astros. He was our best pitcher named Roy Oswalt. A lot of people that are fans of baseball remember the name, a really good pitcher for us. And uh, Roy was from a little town in Mississippi. And when I first met Roy, I asked him, hey, where are you from? And, and of course, he's got a real thick accent. And you could tell he was from the backwoods. And he said, I'm from Weir, Mississippi. And I said, well, where's Weir? And he said, it's just south of Possum Neck. So you know, that, that tells you that he is, he's from the sticks. And so uh, we were standing out uh, during batting practice one day at Enron Field, uh, or I guess now it's Minute Maid Park. And uh, I, there's a guy that, that, that came down. We were sort of out there in, in right center field. And there was a guy that came down in the right field bleachers. And he starts yelling uh, at us to come over and sign an autograph. And in particular, he wanted Roy to come over and sign an autograph. And this guy uh, looked like he was right off the set of deliverance. You know, he was flannel shirt and overalls. Uh, and of course it's, it's hot in Houston. So a little bit of a knew he was out of place with his flannel shirt on, but he's yelling, he's saying, Roy, Roy, we's kin, we's kin folk. So he's, you know, he's yelling at Roy to come over to sign his ball. And Roy of course was like, you know, we took a glance over his shoulder and said, Hey man, your cousin's back over there. He's looking for an autograph. He's like, man, I don't know that guy. And so we didn't go over there. And of course, by that time, BP was about over with. So we, we ran in and I got to thinking about it later. And I thought, you know, here's a guy that comes to the ballpark and he probably knows everything there is to know about Roy Oswald. And he knows win loss record, DRA and knew where he's from and heck even claimed to be related to him. Uh, but the reality was that this guy didn't really know Roy and Roy didn't really know him. And so to me, that 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 kind of hit me as like, you know, that's that's where a lot of people are with God. Like they know a lot about God. They know all the facts. They know all the stories, much like I did, you know, growing up. But they haven't really engaged in an authentic way with Jesus in relationship. And there's a huge difference between, you know, knowing about somebody and really knowing that person. And that that's a story that I think perfectly illustrates the difference between the two. So. Uh, that's that's a story that I, I always share if I have a chance to to share my testimony. Yeah, Lance, I love that because I, I think you're right. I think it is a perfect illustration and something that at some point in our lives, we've all like kind of had to work through is, is like, what are we like? Who is Jesus to us? So, Kara, I want to talk to you about um, in Ephesians because so let me just say, because lots of people don't know you and you're one of my very favorites. And when I think of you, I think of this one time Lance was holding court and he was telling a story and you and I were standing next to each other. And you said to me, you're like, look at him. He is so 
happy right now. He is so happy telling these stories. <laughs> and I thought, that's right, you know, and I just love how you're just so peaceful. And I love being around you because every time I'm around you, I just, you take a deep breath and you just, you're just so peaceful and so loving and kind. And you're one of my very favorites. So I'm really glad that you're on this podcast with us. But when we were, when Matt and I were talking about having y'all on, I thought about First Ephesians um, verse 17. And so Paul's writing this letter to um, the church at Ephesus and, and, he, and he writes a prayer for them. And one of the verses is, I keep asking, or verse 17 says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. And I'll just go ahead and read 18 too. And he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called, called you, the riches and glorious and riches, his glorious inheritance and his holy people. And I just, I guess the question that I have, and I would love for you to kind of explain to people is, is Paul is, um, he really has this desire for these, these folks to know Jesus better. And it's like Lance tells a story about the difference between being a fan and being a follower. And, and Paul knows how important it is for you to know Jesus better. And I don't know, I would just love for you to talk about what you think about that verse and, and kind of practical things that you've done in your relationship with the Lord to know him better. It's a great question, and I and I have that verse open, and I love that verse. And um, he is—he's a glorious father to to those who have put their trust in him. And I grew up in a Christian home, um, but as God just continues to reveal more of Himself to me, He becomes just—you just keep discovering new things in him. And, um, so for those who have put their trust in him, he, um, you're adopted into his family and he becomes, um, you know, he protects them. He provides for them. Um, and not only that, but but it becomes, um, like an eternal inheritance, like just, you just realize more and more of, of who he is. And, and I love that that was Paul's prayer because here he is, he's experienced so much. And he said, there's so much more. There's so much more. Keep pressing in. There's more for you to learn of him. And, um, you know, he is the author um, and giver of eternal glory. And, um, and all the glory is due to him. And, um just the more that you, you know, it says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope um, of his calling. And I feel like that's my constant prayer is, Lord, what is the hope of my calling? What continue to guide me and reveal more and more of yourself um, to me? And um, I think of that verse in 1 Corinthians 2, 9, it says, eyes have not seen, ears have not heard all that he has for those who love him. And I guess that's just where my heart is. And especially times of this virus, when the world is shut down and I just, I feel like scripture has even become more like real to me. And, um, it, it's, there's some scriptures I feel like I'm reading for the first time. Um, it, it just, everything's been stripped of us, you know, during this time. And all we have is his word to just cling to and, and, that's our hope. And so I feel like, um, 
right now to, you know, we fear is what is kind of operating in everybody to certain levels and degrees. And so either fear will either push you into more fear or push you into the Prince of Peace. And I feel like we have choices to make. And um, are you going to be pushed more into fear or are you going to be pushed more into just knowing, you know, the, the hope of glory and, um, so as it, it I, I know I'm rambling, but I've been so giddy in God's word these days of just being able to be locked in home and, um, it, it's been really sweet time. So I don't know if I've answered your question, Leslie. <laughs> I, I think you did answer. I think, I think a practical way to know him better is to, to get in his word. And so I think that's exactly what you said. And in this time of uncertainty and this time that, um, has may uh, may have produced a little bit of fear in you. You know enough about Jesus is going to be faithful to calm that because you're going to get into His Word and you're going to allow Scripture to reveal more of who God is to you in in your life. So yeah, you totally. Well, a lot of times you know, people will they'll say, "Well, what does it mean to to know God?" Because that's such an abstract concept. And and if you think about you know, is God like an imaginary friend? Like, you know, how, how do you know God? What are the practical applications? Because when you talk about that as a believer, you know, sometimes, especially when you're talking to non-believers, you get this kind of this crazy look, like, what do you mean? Like, are you, it's like snuffleupagus, you know, like you're, 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 you're talking about an imaginary person. And that, as if you're a Christian, you know that that's not true. Uh, But I think it's helpful to people to understand really when, when the Bible talks about knowing God, there's, there's three things, and you can see elements of those three things in that verse that you brought up. But the, the way that we fellowship with God, the way that we know God, number one, it does start with a knowledge of God. And so, you know, when I'm telling my story, knowing God, the, the, the story of Roy and me in the outfield sort of illustrates the difference between head knowledge and heart knowledge. But knowledge of God does start with head knowledge. So that's not, it's not anything less than that, but it's so much more than that. So when you talk about knowing God, you have to know about God. And the way to do that is through God's word. So one of the ways that we know God is through the Bible. The second way that we know God is through prayer. It's through spending time with God, communicating with him and, you know, being quiet before him and reflecting on what we've learned and what we know about God and his word. And then the third way that you know God is through fellowship with other believers, because as Christians, we believe that God lives inside of us and the Holy Spirit has come to dwell inside of us. And so when we fellowship with other believers, in effect, we are fellowshipping with God and and with God through those people. So that is how you, you know, if you want three solid practical applications to how do I know God, it's through his word, it's through prayer, and it's through fellowship with other believers. And that's why there's so many admonishments in scripture to, to know scripture, to pray without ceasing, and to not forsake the assembling together, uh, because God knows that that is how we really gain a knowledge of who he is, and that's how we enter into not just a dry intellectual knowledge, but a dynamic, living, breathing, authentic relationship. So those are the three ways that I think if you if you really want to know God better and you want to be known by God, those are the things that you'll be engaged in. Reading of the scripture, prayer, and fellowshipping with other believers. Tara, I was going to ask you, so I know your brothers and... and um you guys are some of the nicest, like faithful, uh, awesome Christian people that I know. Um, what, what would you say your parents did? I mean, like, I know your brothers, like seriously, your brothers are the nicest dudes that I've ever met and, and, and love Jesus. And what would you say that your parents did to help 
you, I guess, um, know God better and, and turn out to be the people that you are and knowing your, about your parents a little bit? Um, I would have to say that, and it was not a, the perfect home or anything, but I would have to say um, it was watching how they lived um, lived out the gospel. Um, I would see, there was nothing to me more powerful than um, walking in my mom's room and she was on her knees. Um, nothing spoke more to me than um, just watching her in, in the word. And they never um, made us go have our quiet time. They didn't force it and shove it down our throats. They just, they lived it. And I just knew that um, there was something really, especially my mom, just there was something really special about mom. And I wanted more of what that peace and that joy that she had. And I just would watch her. So just that watching by example, and I guess as four girls, I'm, I'm kind of getting to even see it on different levels of like going, wait, this is what my mom did. And this is, you know, so she was just such a role model for me, but, um, they just, you know, both of them just lived, lived out the gospel in really, um, unique ways. And it just, what? Yeah, no, I mean, it's just the old, the old hunting dog theory of training a puppy. Like that's, (laughs) you just, if you want the puppy to learn what to do, you just put it with an experienced hunting dog and let it run and it picks it up. It learns by watching and learns by example. And and I think that's the best thing we can do for our kids is just to be a consistent example for them, um, you know, how to live. And I think just from the outside of that family, looking in, looking at Johnny and Carla, they both have done an exemplary job of demonstrating what it means to be a Christian. And uh, of course, you know, like nobody does it perfectly, like we've said, but for the most part, you look at that at, the, at their lives and you say, you know, that's what it kind of that's what it looks like to, to live Christianity out. And uh, and people are blessed by that, by the example that they've set. All right. I have to go back to my Ephesians deal because we have to take advantage of of you guys on this because you know so much about the Bible, but it says when it talks about hope in this context, I think um, it's important to realize that Paul's it's not hope as in kind of a wish or wishful thinking. It's hope and a confident expectation of who Jesus is and what he's going to um, deliver for the people that place their hope in him. So Lance, how would you, how would you describe hope to somebody that, like you said, I really laughed about the imaginary friend thing because when I was in school the other day, I had to write a paper about the resurrection and about Jesus. And I wrote that about Carlos and Jesus because Carlos was Reed's imaginary friend. And I do think that people from the outside looking in, it is a lot like the, sometimes Christianity can look really weird. And I think that um, it is kind of like an imaginary friend, like Reed and Carlos, they ran around together for a really long time and they were best buddies, but Matt and I weren't really, you know, privy to everything about their relationship, right? We just overheard Reed's, Reed's side of the conversation. And I think the one thing about Reed and Carlos that that I think is is so much different than than Jesus. And the one thing? The one, there's a lot, of, <laughs> there's a lot of things, but the one thing, is, like one thing specifically is when we have imaginary friends, we're in charge of the narrative and we're in charge of when they leave and we're in charge of when they go to sleep and all of that stuff. And so we're in charge of the narrative reads in charge of what Carlos does. And, um, as Christians, we're not in charge at all. 
well, Jesus is in charge and um, Jesus is the narrative from the beginning until the very end. And so um, we couldn't put any hope in Carlos. It was just a wish, right? And so anyway, I'm just curious what you what you would say to somebody as far as hope goes. Because I think you brought it up, Kara, like in this time of, of this virus and all this shutting down and all this all these things that we're experiencing, hope is a word that's thrown around a whole lot. But as a Christian, I think it's defined a little bit different than um, a non-Christian definition of what hope is. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you can you can hope in all kinds of things that don't provide any real either satisfaction or results, if you will. And so, like, what Paul's talking about here is that to the church in Ephesus is, you know, Christianity being somewhat of a new concept, the hope that we have in eternal life, the hope that we have in the resurrection of our souls, uh, the hope that we have to escape death and not not through any effort of ourselves, but we have to hope in in the fact that God will do it for us. And so like, I'm listening to, I like to listen to podcasts and, and I'm, I'm a kind of a true crime podcast deal. And so I'm listening to this, this one right now. And, and part of the story is about the Hare Krishna movement back in the sixties and seventies, where these people embraced Americans embraced this Eastern religion and, you know, in a hope to, to find peace and somehow gain enlightenment. And they were putting their hope in, these uh, gurus and these these teachers that would come over from India, and you know, for a while they were getting what we would consider sort of temporary results. But the problem with putting your hope in something like that is it's not eternal and it doesn't last. So for the Christian, uh, and and these people were very devout. I mean, they would they forsook any sort of you know alcohol consumption, and they were you know they were very. Um, uh, they were, they were all about abstinence. You know, they denied their body certain things. They were vegetarian. They observed these strict deals. They meditated, they prayed, they, you know, a lot of the things that we would consider to be good activities as Christians, they were committed to those, but they were, they were hoping in the wrong thing. And ultimately, and the story kind of bears it out, their hope was, was, was wasted. Their hope was not in any, anything that could be effective for the eventual salvation of their souls. And so as Christians, when you talk about hope, you're talking about, placing your trust in somebody that will be effective, not just for this life, but for eternity. And I think it's interesting that uh, when Paul's writing about this hope, you know, the reality is nobody really knows what this looks like when you die, including Paul. Like, you know, here's a guy that is incredibly devout and had these amazing experiences, was converted miraculously on the road to Damascus, heard the voice of God, was caught up in the seventh heaven, which we don't even really know what that is, but you know, when he was in Arabia for three years after his conversion, he had these deep and kind of mystical experiences with, with God. And yet even he has no idea what really happens, like how the mechanics of it work when you die. So there's an element of hope that requires faith, you know, and I think that's what God is looking for. It's like, look, I, you have to trust what I'm telling you is true. It's just like you go back and you look at countless Old Testament examples. Noah had no clue when he was building the ark that whether or not God was really going to flood the earth. I mean, he just took God at his word and put his hope and trust in the fact that what God is telling him is true. And of course, then he was born out to be saved from the flood because of his faith. And he, you know, you could, you could interchange the word hope right there. He's hoping that what God says is true, but it's not like a hope like, oh, okay, well, you know, we're just hoping for the best. It's a, it's a hope, a uh, biblical hope always, there's action that accompanies biblical hope. It's not just, Hey, I'm, I'm, saying that I hope for this, it's I'm going to purpose my life to demonstrate 
that I've placed my faith and trust in this entity, and 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 that's in Jesus. So when we are placing our hope and trust in Jesus, our lives will reflect that. There'll be action that follows that, and our and our hope will ultimately be rewarded. And so I think that's how you know that when the Bible talks about hope and faith, almost interchange interchangeably. No one knows for sure because when you know, then the faith component is eliminated. You know that that that's that, that's why people always I uh, hate the some of the the ways that people try to describe faith. They're like, okay, well, you know, when I sit down in this chair, I have faith that it's not going to collapse under me. And, and therefore, you know, that's what, that's what faith really is. And my response to that is no, because you've experienced the fact that if you sat in that chair, you're not going to fall. So now that's not faith, that's knowledge. And so there, you know, when there's an element of, Hey, we have to believe God and take him at his word, even though we don't know for sure what happens, you know, when we die, but we know what God has said and we know what God has revealed about himself and we know what God has revealed about faith in the Bible. And so our responsibility as believers is to take God at his word. And you see that all through the the pages of scripture. That's the people that are blessed. So the people that take God at his word, that believe God, you know, and that goes all the way back to the beginning of time. So our responsibility as Christians is to have the hope that God is going to save us, that God is trustworthy to enact the things that he promises us in scripture. And then we should demonstrate that hope by the way that we live and the way that we treat other people. And it should be reflected in our lives. It's funny. We were talking to Jackson last night. We were sitting around the fire and he said, uh, how old are we when we die and go to heaven? And Leslie and I were like, I don't know, 30, you know, we're trying to guess like Jesus died when he was 33 and he's like, really that old? And, you know, it's just funny to think about like in heaven, how old he's like, well, what about babies that pass away when they're babies? They're not babies, are they? That wouldn't be very much fun. And just like, just kind of some honest questions from a teenager. It was, it was kind of interesting to think about. Like, well, it's hard. It's hard to think about those things from a human perspective because we're bound by time. Like right. for us, we we our our life is like you know born, live, die, and and we have a very finite grasp of what that means because we're bound by time. But God sees the whole thing like a, on a timeline, like just like we can open a history book and see, well, here was the start of the Roman Empire and here's the fall of the Roman Empire. That's how God views all of human history, including you know what we call the future. God's already looking at as though it were on this timeline. So you know, God is not bound by time. And when we die and our soul is no longer bound by our body, it's not bound by time either. It's eternal. And it, and it goes, you know, to, um, to be in the presence of the Lord. So, uh, I, I think that, you know, just like Jesus said, there's no marrying or giving in marriage and, in in the afterlife, you know, he was challenged by the Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection. They felt like when you died, that was it. So they, they, they tried to trick Jesus by, you know, talking about this Jewish law, you know, whereby somebody was married and if they died, their brother had to marry that woman. And if he died, you know, then the other brother had to marry. So there was this deal and Jesus was like, you don't get it. Like there's no marrying or giving in marriage. So eternity is a completely different experience than what we know here on earth. And so that's why it's so hard for us to conceive of it in our minds because we're so limited uh, by our own experience. All right. So two things. Number one, when we get hard questions, call him Lance. Because we just said our answer was, hey, man, I don't know. 33? I hope I'm not a baby, too. <laughs> like, I mean, that's what I, I mean, that's what we went with it. And then we moved. And so do you, and then he says, 
So do you think like, we'll still be a family? Oh, sure, bud. We'll still be a family. So I, yeah. think, I was like, I don't know. That's well, look at the, I mean, if you look at the transfiguration, <laughs> like if you look at the we transfiguration, yeah. But when Jesus took his disciples up to the Mount and they, you know, Jesus was transformed in front of them. Now keep in mind, these, the, the disciples had never laid eyes on Moses or Abraham, but when, when Jesus was transfigured, it's the Bible says that Moses and Abraham appeared on the Mount and the disciples immediately knew who they were, although they had never met them, never laid eyes on them. So that lets me know that in the resurrection, we will be able to recognize people. I'm, I'm inferring that from scripture, you know, so while we may not exist in the family unit like we know it here, there is going to be some recognition and some, hey, like, you know, we there's Leslie, there's Matt, you know. And I, and I think that part of our reward in heaven is going to be being able to see and fellowship those that we've impacted spiritually here on earth. So, like, if someone comes to faith in Christ as a result of your faithfulness, there's going to be a special relationship between you and that person in eternity because you'll, you know, there'll be that knowledge of, hey, like, the reason I'm here is because God used you in my life. And I think that's really cool. But I don't think we have to always have answers like that for our kids. I think that's part of the mysteries of God, you know, things to look We made it extra mysterious last night. (laughs) 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 We we should have called you. Okay. Well, two things we want to talk about, and then we'll get you guys out of here because I know know we don't want to go on for like hours, but what you just said, I think is really cool as far as like, I mean, I, you hear it a lot. Like I led so-and-so to Christ. And to me, that's always, I don't like that. I don't like how that's termed, right? It's like, I led Matt to Christ and it makes it all about, I don't know. I just don't like that lingo, but what you just said, I really like, and I'm going to start using as far as like my faithfulness had an impact on, on his life. So talk about that just a little bit too, because I think that that takes the pressure off of people that are getting serious about discipling others or um, taking the Great Commission seriously like we're supposed to. Um, But I think that the way you said it kind of simplifies it in my mind a little bit about just being faithful. Yeah, well, I mean, I've always had a problem with that lingo. It it, it rubs me the wrong way when somebody says, I led so-and-so, because the reality is it's God working through you. And we're just, you know, we're vessels of... God's graciousness and goodness. And sometimes he allows us to participate in what he's doing. And so, you know, that I think to the extent that you're available and that you're allowing God to work through you, because it's the, the onus is not on us to affect salvation and other people. And I can make a, I can make the most uh, eloquent and most airtight argument to a non-believer, but if God hasn't already prepared their heart to receive the word, then it, it won't matter. And so the work is a hundred percent God's and he allows us to participate in it. And I think the, the, you know, the, the Bible talks a lot about rewards. Well, to the extent that we are allowing God to use our lives for his glory, that's how you, 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 that's how you acquire those rewards. That's how you reap rewards in eternity is by allowing God to use you. The onus is not on you. And there's a, uh, I think when you say, well, I led so-and-so to Christ, that, that puts the, that gives you the glory that, that makes it seem like you did something good. And instead of God working through you. So I think the distinction is, is minor, but extremely important. And I'm with you, Leslie, like I've always felt that way about that. So I've never said, well, I led so-and-so it's always, Hey, you know, God used me to have an impact on this person. And what's crazy is if you're committed to being 
uh, a faithful follower of Christ, you will impact people that you have no clue that you even impacted. I mean, I think you about care, right? I mean, it's not about numbers. It's just about being faithful to. Yeah. Exactly. When you think about. Well, it's, it's also, it's humbling yourself and, and taking no ownership of anything it, it, in Isaiah. It talks about all the, even the right things we do are like filthy rags. And then in Ecclesiastes, there is not a righteous person on earth. So we have to go, it's nothing in me or in nothing I do. It's, it's Christ through me is the only, you know, influence of any sort that I would have. And I love every time before we even start the Bible study group I'm in, her first question is, how has God used you this week? So going back to the Great Commission and the, and the discipleship that you were talking about, it's how is God using you? And, and are you making, it's like Paul. Paul took risk, he was available, and he was willing. And that's, to me, the whole discipleship, you know, layout. Is, we had, yeah, we had our old chaplain for the Astros. He's, he's since passed on. But uh, his name was Gene Pemberton, and he'd pray every chapel. He'd say, "Lord, I'm nothing, but if you can use nothing, I sure am available." So he—that was his—that was his prayer. Uh, and you know, I think about—I think it's Matthew 25. I have to go back and confirm it. But you know, when at the judgment of the sheep and the goats, the question is like, when did we see you? You know, because when God is separating, you know, believers and non-believers, and then and the rewards being handed out, the dialogue is like, when did we help you? When did we? visit somebody and when did we visit you in prison when did we feed you when you were hungry and he's like if you've done this to the least of these you've done it for me and then the goats are like when did we not do this so the point is that by the way that we live we are having an impact whether we know it or not and we are you know in effect either doing things for Christ or not based on how we live even if it's without our knowledge with our conscious consent to do those things so uh it's very important in the way that to live in such a way that our testimony is not compromised. And as the scripture talks about, like we're truly ambassadors for Christ. Like we are Jesus's representatives here on earth. And by the way that we live, we are demonstrating the character of God and we're either doing that well or poorly. And, you know, I I think that, that that's a heavy call that we should all be conscious of. Yeah, absolutely. Let's okay. We have, we can't stop the podcast without talking about marriage, right? Well, I was going to make Lance oh. tell his, his cardinal. We'll close the show with the or people, or people story, but you can ask the marriage question and then I'll get to my favorite cardinal. No, I, Matt told me last night because I we were sitting with the kids and um, and Jackson has a girlfriend now. So we're trying to, you know, get to know her better. And, and she's awesome. Wonderful, wonderful young woman. He did great picking her. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. But the point is, is we were sitting around and we were talking and I was like, Matt, I have so enjoyed you. Like, I like you a whole lot. And I didn't, you know, cause you hear all this stuff with the quarantine. Right. And it's like, they're so negative about marriages and all these little, these little text messages going on about how they can't stand hanging out with their wife. But I, I mean, I so enjoy Matt's company and I'm learning more about him than I ever thought I would. I mean, we've been married almost 20 years. But then he brought up the point that this is, what'd you say? This is the most time we've ever spent together, ever, like in our marriage, right? Because with baseball, you know, you get married and you spend like just little chunks of time together. But this last however many weeks it's been, this is the most we've ever been together. So I don't know. I just think that um, 
my question is in all of that, <laughs> you know, I, this is what's been challenging about the podcast is I just start talking and then I'm like, oh my gosh, right. We're supposed to ask questions and it's so bad. We're so not professionals, but here's my question is what would you, you guys have been married a long time. We've been around you guys a whole lot and we love you guys as marriage. It's really, really fun and funny and you're great parents. You're a great team. So for the young people that are listening to this, that are new out of the gate, um, trying to figure out the marriage thing, give them some advice because you guys do it well. So, <laughs> hey, well, let me, first of all, let me say this. I'd love to hear your answer to this thing, but um, he's been retired seven years. Matt, you're not there yet. So he's going on, or this is, we're in the seventh year. Yeah. And we've been in quarantine because he hasn't had a job for seven years. <laughs> normal for us yeah. to be together this much. And actually, my sister-in-law said the other day, she said, Kara, I'm just now understanding your life because Jake, my brother, has been home, her husband, has been home all the time. She's like, he's home all the time. She goes, I understand your life now. I go, so basically, yeah, I've lived in quarantine with Lance now for seven years. And it's really, he's, <laughs> it's been great. I'm, we're kind of like y'all, like we're, we're loving this time together. And, I, and, and that's a blessing to get to say, because I know that's not everyone's story, but um, marriage, we've been married 21 years and it, tr I can truly say it only gets sweeter. And um, how? I, well, I think that the, the, the biggest thing is, you know, in, is almost, I don't know if the right word to say is intent or, you know, what you're looking to get out of the marriage. I think a lot of people, go into a marriage and they look for, well, what is this going to do for me? Like, mm -hmm. how is this going to increase my happiness? And I'm in effect mm -hmm. using this person to make me happy. And the second that the person stops making me happy, well, then I'm going to look for somebody else that's going to make me happy. But that's not the, the, the God's intention for marriage is not necessarily our happiness. It's our holiness. And so I think if you can if you can view your spouse as God's instrument of refinement in your life, that that that's a huge step towards understanding what it means to have a great marriage. And so, and it's, it's not something that comes naturally. Like it's taken me, like, I, I, I think this all the time. I don't know if I've verbalized it to Kara, but I wish I could go back to the very first part of our marriage, knowing what I know now, not only about my spouse, but about how marriage is supposed to look, because I feel like I wasted, you know, maybe, a decade or so trying to figure it out. And so like, if I had had the attitude of, Hey, I'm Kara is sort of God's way of refining my life from the very beginning there, we would have avoided some pitfalls, you know, that we've had along the way, but I, I've grown as we, the longer we've been married, we've been married 21 years. I've grown in my appreciation for how God continually uses Kara to sort of chisel the things out of my life that need to, to be out. And I think, you know, we, really balance each other well. I think I have the same impact on Kara. Some of the things where, you know, she may be a little bit further this way, I'll bring her back towards the center. And when I'm a little bit further this way, you know, she brings me back to the center. And I think having an appreciation for the role that your wife plays in your life is a big part of having a happy marriage. And so, you know, I just feel like, hey, even, and it's not always comfortable. Like whenever you're asked to change or whenever you're having to really think about your behavior, whenever you're having to give yourself to someone else, it's, it's sometimes it's an uncomfortable process and it's not one that we as human beings naturally gravitate towards. We're always self-seeking, but the beauty of marriage is 
um, you know, let me seek the happiness of my wife. And what's crazy, and you can see this counterintuitive nature all throughout Scripture. You know, an example of it is when Jesus says, hey, you know, if somebody asks you to go one mile, go two. If somebody strikes you on the right cheek, turn to your left also. These are things that are against our human reactions. But if we engage in those things, we end up getting the blessing. And so the, the crazy thing about marriage is if you will commit to investing in the happiness of your wife, you will then gain far more happiness for yourself than you ever would have if you were only out to get happiness for yourself. It's well, I, can, I can say not only wife, but spouse. So if I'm doing the same thing and filling in the blank as for my husband, it's, it's, it's really bottom. It all sums up with dying to self. But Gary Thomas wrote a book called Sacred Influence. And he wrote it for wives. And it's so good. I did it with the Asho's wives one year. And it was their favorite Bible study. And on the cover, it says, marriage is not to make us happy, but to make us more holy. And that's basically what you were saying. And that's exactly what I said. (laughs) Then you took it from Gary Thomas. I think you taught me that. (laughs) (laughs) See how it all comes full circle. (laughs) But that's my favorite marriage quote. I mean, and it's you, you made that. Stole it. Yeah. Well, you not only did you steal it, but you just. You yeah. just really expanded on that yeah. because that to me, it sums it up. It's marriage is not to make us happy, but to make us more holy. And it's to die to self. If so. you seek to save your life, you'll lose it. If you seek to lose your life, you'll gain it. I mean, there's this, it's counterintuitive. So to the extent that you're willing to seek your spouse's happiness, that happiness will come back on you tenfold. If you are only concerned with your own happiness, then you're, you'll have a bad marriage. And so, you know, that's, that's just the nature of that's how God set it up. And it did, he did it on purpose so that we are molded that your spouse, no, there's nobody and nothing that will have a greater impact on your uh, becoming more and more like Jesus than, than allow, allow your spouse to speak into your life and to, to help chisel away those things that, you know, that need to be chiseled away. So God, the, the marriage covenant is sacred to God because it is so effective in making believers more into the image of Jesus. And that, and that comes with ups and downs. It's not, that's, it's not easy. Yeah, It's not a linear process. It's intentional, I mean, it's, very intentional. Yeah. And it's up and down and you do it well sometimes. And sometimes you do it poorly. It's just like anything else in life. Absolutely. You guys are awesome. Yeah. We need to have them back on. It's on speed dial. But I feel like you kind of ramble. I hope this isn't too long. So uh, at least no, I, I think they, I've, they can turn it off if they don't want to listen anymore. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> good point. <laughs> um the one one story before we go um we were sitting you want to tell it or do you want me to tell it well it's probably better for you to tell it since yeah, you have the perspective yeah, you, on it you were the, uh, we, we have a district i see i felt like this happened in philadelphia and you no i was 100 percent sure it was in chicago but <laughs> we're no stone crab in chicago see i thought it was at some fancy deal in philly okay but anyway but whatever better um <laughs> So we're sitting at a, at a dinner, uh, Lance and, and Adam Wainwright, and I think Skip Schumacher was there, and, and maybe oh, yeah. and a couple other guys. Skip was there for sure. Westy. Um, Jake Westbrook. And we were just having a nice dinner and, and a, at a crowded place. And the reason I think it was is because I think it was at Joe Stonecrab's because it's kind of that open dining room, and there's, you're really sitting very close to the people. And there was a table uh, where you almost could rub elbows with with this group of people and the Cubs Cardinal series. And I feel like there was just card Cardinal fans and Cubs fans everywhere. And this younger group of people, probably college, maybe slightly, uh, maybe, maybe late twenties group of people had had several drinks and, and, uh, 
it looked like they'd kept looking over at our table and, and kind of were whispering. And, and finally, one of them got the courage uh, to turn towards our table and say, she, she, she was, uh, had had a few drinks, like I said, and, and kind of, hey, are you guys Cardinals? And Lance, probably telling an amazing story, was right in the middle of talking. And he turns to the girl and says, no, we're people and turns back and just keeps talking. And I just about spit my food out and just, I mean, the, it was as if he knew that that woman was about to say, are you guys Cardinals? He no, we're people. Says, no, we're people. And then continues to tell his story. And I think Skip and I both made eye contact and realized what had just happened. And, you know, forever. And the, and the girl kind of didn't know what to, she looked and kind of, and now that you mentioned that, you don't have feathers and you're not red. So, yeah, it looks like you are people. I think she realized quickly, and I, it was amazing. And oh, she just kind of good said, days. Uh, that was, that was, I'll have to say that that was sort of like a bolt from the heavens. That was divine intervention. Like, I just, it just popped into my brain that that would be the perfect response to this. And it was, bird. and it was so quick. And I thought, just calling you a bird? No, I, I, you know, it was just, yeah, I acted, I played like I was like, no, I mean, we're people. What are you looking at? You know, Cardinals. No. Oh. anyway, good um, stuff. that's amazing guys. Thanks for coming on. It's, uh, we always love being with you guys. Absolutely. It's just like ditto. Likewise, whatever you want to say, you guys are some of our favorites that we've ever played with and always enjoy our time together. All right. Well, we appreciate you guys coming on and, and uh, we'll have you back on soon. Thank All right. you. Bye guys. Bye. Guys. Bye. Bye.